Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet them, greet them, treat them, and street them. Today's date is July 28th, 2022, and I am your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is Going Ultrasound for Small Bowel Obstructions. And our guest skeptic is Dr. Kirsty Chowen. She's a consultant in emergency medicine at Lancaster Teaching Hospital. She's also the creator of those wonderful infographics called Paper and a Pick. Welcome back to the SGM, Kirsty. What a dark end. Not in Lancashire today in Wales. How are you? Yes, you're somewhere in the UK. I knew that. But you're in Wales having a whale of a good time in a, shall we say it, a pub. A pub while away on a camping holiday. So this is this is turning into a pubcast. Uh, yeah, it's only the pub for the Wi-Fi, obviously, Ken. No other reason <laughs> to be here at all. Well, thank you for taking some time out of your uh, adventure up in Wales to do this. Why don't we just jump right in and give us a case? So, a 63-year-old woman presents to your emergency department with a two-day history of nausea, vomiting, constipation. She tells you she had appendicitis complicated by perforation and peritonitis 10 years ago. and You suspect she has additional small bowel obstruction. You call your surgical colleague who, predictably asks you to order a CT. The patient asks if there's an alternative to this, as she had several CTs on her last admission and is worried about her radiation exposure and her copay. Well, somewhere between 2 and 4% of patients presenting to American emergency departments with abdominal pain have a small bowel obstruction, an SBO. Those who are managed operatively, eh, roughly about 20 to 30%, account for 60,000 hospitalizations and over half a million inpatient care days per year. We know that clinical examination has poor sensitivity and specificity for diagnosing SBO and that imaging is therefore necessary. CT is generally the first choice of imaging because the abdominal series of plain x-rays have been demonstrated to have poor predictive value. But a 2018 meta-analysis, we'll put the reference in the show notes, found 92.4% sensitivity, 96.6% specificity for ultrasound. Now there's a 2020 national UK report into patients treated for bowel obstruction, found delays in imaging and diagnosis, and recommended CT with IV contrast as the first-line investigation. Somewhat surprisingly, We've never covered small bowel obstructions on the SGEM, although pediatric EM superhero Dr. Anthony Krakow shared his views on the lack of utility of abdominal plane films in pediatric constipation way back in 2016. All right, Kirsty, what's the clinical question we're going to be addressing on today's pubcast? Does use point-of-care ultrasound as a first line in suspected small bowel obstruction, reduce cost, length of stay, and radiation exposure. Okay, what's the reference? Brower et al. Point-of-care ultrasound first for the evaluation of small bowel obstruction, national cost savings, length of stay reduction, and preventable radiation exposure. And that is from Academic and Emergency Medicine, July 2022. All right, let's run through the PCOT. What was the population? Patients with an ICD-10 coding for interstitial obstruction from 2018 and the National Hospital Ambulatory Medical Care Survey. 
And what was the intervention? A POCUS first approach. So that's point of care ultrasound. And what did they compare it to? CT imaging is baseline. All right, let's run through their outcomes. What was their primary outcome of interest for this study? Potential cost savings. And their secondary outcomes? Reduction in length of stay in the ED, reduction in radiation exposure, and preventable cancers. And what type of study was this? Well, this is, I think, a new one for the SGEM. This is a Monte Carlo modeling study. Well, that seems appropriate, um, considering I'm in Las Vegas right now recording this, so having some kind of gambling involved, um, not that we're going to gamble with people's health care. But this is an SGEM hot off the press episode. And so we are pleased to have not one, but two, le deuxième star, the two stars, the two authors, two of the authors on the show. That is Dr. Charles Brower. He's a second-year resident training in emergency medicine at the University of Cincinnati. And his primary research interest is in the intersection between clinical operations and ultrasound to improve patient outcomes in an efficient and cost-effective way. Welcome to the SGEM, Charles. Thank you so much for having me. Really excited. Can I call you Charlie? Oh, yeah. Go by Charlie, Chuck, any of the above. Also joining us is Dr. Andrew Goldsmith, Director of Emergency Ultrasound in the Department of Emergency Medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital at Harvard Medical School. Welcome to the SGM, Andrew. Thank you, Chrissy, for having us. Uh, we're very excited to be here today. So we're going to divide things up. Uh, one of you will answer some questions, the other will answer other questions, and some of you may want to contribute to answering a question. But we need one of you to read the conclusions from your study. I can take it from here. So our study's conclusion was, if adopted widely and used consistently, a POCUS-first algorithm for SVO could yield substantial national cost savings by averting advanced imaging, decreasing ED length of stay, and reducing unnecessary radiation exposure in patients. Clinical decision tools are needed to better identify which patients would benefit most from CT imaging for SVO in the ED. And as Kirsty alluded to earlier, this is a unique study for the SGEM with regards to the study design, the methodology. This is a cost analysis study. So we, I reached out to my BFF, Chris Carpenter, and said, hey, do you have a quality checklist for cost analysis studies? And of course he did. So it's broken up into two parts. There's part one, which is, are the recommendations valid? And then there's part two, how can I apply the results to patient care? So for that first part, are the recommendations valid? Kirsty, did the investigators adopt a sufficiently broad viewpoint? They did. Are the results reported separately for patients whose baseline risk differs? No, they aren't. Were costs measured accurately? Yes, in terms of the cost to the hospitals. Within the U.S. system, it's less clear whether this translates to cost to patients. And did the investigators consider the timing of costs and outcomes? No. All right, so for part two, this is about how can I apply the results to patient care? Are the treatment benefits worth the harms and costs? Yes. Could my patients expect similar health outcomes? I don't know. Imaging practice tends to differ between jurisdictions, particularly between the US and the UK. Can I expect similar cost savings at my setting? 
it depends. In, it depends in this case on the financial climate of your practice location. Are the criteria relevant to my practice setting? Yeah, I think they are. And the final question, have the criteria been field tested for feasibility of use in diverse settings, including similar settings to mine? No, not yet. All right, let's go through the results. In this U.S. population, a point-of-care ultrasound-first approach for imaging of small bowel obstructions would avert a mean of 143,000 CT scans annually. Now that would translate into saving, and I have to put my pinky, and I know it's an audio show, but by, to the corner of my mouth and say, $30 million. It would also uh, save over uh, 500,000 bed hours, and they predict, based on this modeling, almost 100 excessive cancer deaths could be prevented. Kirsty, what was the key result? Using point-of-care ultrasound as first-line imaging in suspected small bowel obstruction could avoid 143,000 CT scans annually in the U.S., potentially saving millions of dollars. And we'll put a uh, table in the show notes that shows a sensitivity analysis of the results. But let's get into the talk nerdy section, because we have Charlie and Andrew here to answer our nerdy questions. And so let's alternate, Kirsty. I'll go th first, and I'm in Las Vegas, so I'm going to talk about the Monte Carlo simulation. Gentlemen, can you describe this for us in a clinically friendly language and why you thought it was the right methodology to answer your question? And I'm going to try my best here, but uh, my former life as a management consultant means I sometimes get lost in the modeling weeds. But Monte Carlo simulation is an approach to modeling phenomena with uncertainty in inputs commonly used to understand the impact of risk and uncertainty in financial forecasting in business. These models take various inputs distributed across a range of values and run simulations using randomly selected values from these distributions. Now, I know that doesn't sound clinician friendly yet, but I'll get there. In this way, Monte Carlo models generate outcomes distributions with statistical measures, such as standard deviations, variance, skewness, reflecting uncertainty in input variables. The way I like to think about it is a Monte Carlo model is essentially just a mathematical equation. A times B equals C. But in this case, A and B are actually just ranges of a bunch of numbers reflecting uncertainty in what we think they are. So when you use the simulation and you sample randomly from those, you generate an outcome, C, that also is a range of various values reflecting that uncertainty. Now, we chose this approach for our study, given that we are relying on national data that inherently has significant uncertainty built into it. As such, we needed to use a model that would reflect this uncertainty in order to generate our outcomes and conclusions. Well, that's an excellent answer, uh, Charlie. I think that's really going to help both myself and the listeners understand Monte Carlo simulations. Thanks, Charlie. Uh, now, I'm guessing that management consultancy is the same as medicine, and models are only as good as the information you feed into them. So garbage in, garbage out. How reliable was the information you were able to get for your modeling assumptions, stuff like numbers of patients that needed confirmatory CT? We can't agree more. 
models are only as good as the underlying data fed into them. However, we also believe in the aphorism that all models are wrong, but some are useful. In this way, we recognize limitations in some of our underlying data, but believe our results are directionally accurate and have significant implications for how we practice emergency medicine. So our model relies on the most up-to-date and widely accepted sources in the literature, but we get it. There are still limitations and we had to make assumptions where there wasn't any data available. One such assumption that you referenced was the number of patients who went on to confirmatory CT imaging despite a diagnostic ultrasound for SVO. This decision is influenced by a ton of factors, physician preference, concern for concomitant pathology, atypical anatomy, and the big one, CT imaging ordered by non-emergency providers or recommended by them. There are no studies to date that investigate the percentage of SBOs diagnosed by POCUS that then go on to confirmatory CT imaging, mainly because not that many providers are using POCUS for SBO today. However, there was a 2014 randomized control trial comparing POCUS to CT imaging for the diagnosis of nephrolithiasis. This study reports that 40.7% of the patients in the POCUS group actually just went on to confirmatory CT imaging. They didn't explain why this happened, but this is how the study went down. We felt that this metric was the best available data to inform our model, given that POCUS for nephrolithiasis has been accepted as a viable imaging alternative to CT and has been studied rigorously in a randomized control setting. Further, the inclusion of this crossover imaging rate actually makes our model more conservative. We're essentially saying that approximately half of the diagnostic ultrasounds will still go on to CT imaging for a variety of reasons, thereby decreasing the number of CT scans avoided and decreasing our potential cost savings. So Charlie, I like what you said there about models and being wrong. Could you just remind me, what was that again? Because I really liked it. I can't remember who this quote is attributed to, but the, the quote is, all models are wrong, but some are useful. And it, it was taught to me uh, when I was learning how to do this sort of analysis. It sort of reminds me of the statement about science and, and looking for the truth, because science doesn't make any truth claims. What science does is try to find the best point estimate of the quote-unquote truth with a confidence interval around that point estimate. So we never get to the quote-unquote truth, just the best point estimate. So with modeling, I guess a friendly amendment to that statement could be all modeling is wrong, except some models are less wrong. I think that's definitely a friendly amendment to the statement. All right, let's get on to nerdy point number three. This is about sensitivity analyses. Can you explain the importance of a sensitivity analysis? Why did you do one of these? Thank you for the question. And I, I think it's very important to address what a sensitivity analysis is. It's, it's another form of financial model. And basically it's evaluating the impact of uncertain variables, such as independent variables that can lead to different outputs. One good example of this, and I'm a nerd into finance, is that if you change your financial portfolio of bonds and stocks, you get a dependent historical return. So you're using independent variables of what you wanna put into your model and changing your output based on historical data. So in our study, we chose to perform a sensitivity analysis by varying the percentages of SBO cases for non-operative management. And in addition, we also adjusted the sensitivity of point of care ultrasound for diagnosing SBO, as these variables would have the largest impact on our model. So at the end, we performed a sensitivity analysis also on the assumed realization rate because we know 
that not every ED doc is going to be able to adopt point of care ultrasound for SPOs right away. So we've performed this to give our readers a more realistic appreciation of the range of possible financial savings that a POCUS first adoption could have. And I just want to identify, that was Andrew speaking. I've just met you two gentlemen and listening to Charlie's voice and Andrew's voice, they're pretty similar, actually. Uh, I don't know if you were having that, Christy, as well. But I just want to say, hey, that was Andrew, not Charlie. Yeah, fortunately, Zoom is telling me who's talking, so I'm not having to work quite so hard. Um, that's really interesting, Andrew. Thank you. I think that that comes back to what we were saying about science is looking for a point estimate of the truth with the uncertainty margins around it. And if I've understood you correctly, the sensitivity analyses are about working out how uncertain those uncertainty margins are. Is that right? That is correct. And as you know, there is some uncertainty in the data as it comes to sensitivity and bowel obstruction, as well as the non-operative management of SBOs. Yes, many things are uncertain in practice. Nerdy point number four. So you didn't do subgroup analysis. And I think it's likely that the effects of a change in practice would probably vary across different patient groups, especially thinking if cancer incidents, if you're looking at patient ages, that's, that's probably going to change. Did you think about modeling different subgroups? Was there a particular reason you weren't able to do that? We did consider doing a subgroup analysis in our model. However, national data stratified by etiology for SBO is just lacking. There's no data out there at the national level that says this is how many SBOs occur due to adhesions, hernias, inflammatory bowel disease, and malignancy. So while we wanted to, we just couldn't. But certainly operationalizing a POCUS-first algorithm for SBO will require identifying these specific patient subgroups that would benefit most from POCUS versus CT. However, we were able to apply our model to the subgroup of patients with recurrent SBO, which we believe is a clinically relevant uh, group of patients given how recurrent this disease process is. Our analysis revealed that a POCUS-first algorithm limited to this group of recurrent SBO patients would still yield significant cost savings and reductions in ED length of stay. And we feel that this may actually be a reasonable approach for operationalizing an algorithm given ASEP's Choosing Wisely guidelines that recommend avoiding CT imaging in patients with recurrent renal colic. And one last point with regard to patients with malignant SBO, we speculate that ultrasound may be able to play a large role in management for this population, given higher recurrence rates and lower rates of operative intervention. And this is a patient group that already is exposed to a whole bunch of ionizing radiation through frequent CT imaging. Bear in mind, this speculation is based on just some preliminary analysis in another project we're doing, and is more my opinion than anything rigorously studied. Well, that brings me to the fifth and final point, and that's about supporting evidence. You have commented on the simulation nature of your study and its limitation. So we're in the matrix here. Do you have plans to get out of the matrix and further address this research question? Thank you for the question, Ken. And, uh... I think this is the crux of why we did this, because this leads to the future research questions that we can address. So we viewed this project as a means to identify an opportunity for significant costs and time savings and wasted advanced imaging for the diagnosis of bowel obstructions. We are doing a similar study on kidney stones using the ASAP choosing wisely as well. But let's just stick to bowel obstruction for this question. And I think the key here is to think about the audience we need to speak to, and that specifically is surgeons. 
And why do surgeons want a CT scan on all these patients? And really, it comes down to a few things after talking to them. And their concerns are the possible complications, whether that's a perforation, peritonitis, closed bowel loop obstructions, or in the first one, why are they actually having the bowel obstruction? And so our first step to address this is that we're currently conducting a retrospective study of over 4,000 cases here in Boston of bowel obstruction and looking at all the significant factors you would want to look at, whether that's the patient's medical history, their laboratory data, their CT findings, and then looking at that and saying, did they go to the operating room or not, specifically in the first 48 hours, as we feel that a delay in CT scan may prevent that decision in a timely manner. And so our hope is that this study will give us some clinical data that we can then trial out in a potential perspectives validation study eventually. Well, that's fantastic. So I do see some progression there. Uh, you're in the matrix doing this Monte Carlo simulation sort of stuff, but then you're going to focus it in onto, let's do a retrospective study of just our small bowel obstructions. And key to that is involving the surgeons, involving them in this discussion. And then I, I can see in the future maybe doing something prospectively with the surgeons, talking about which imaging tests to do first and looking at the outcome. So yeah, you've got some research ahead of you. I think the exciting part here is if you think about it, maybe a patient eventually walks in, they have known bowel obstructions, you do an ultrasound, the specificity is so high you're so confident about obstruction. They look well. They're hemodynamically stable. Because it's recurrent, their laboratory is normal. You put in that nasogastric tube and you admit the patient in one or two hours comparatively to the delay in CT scanning, the ionized radiation, and allow them to decompress on the floor. And if anything were to happen, you can get the CT scan up there. The flow is just is unbelievable to what it could be. Well, I'd have to say that that modeling <laughs> assumes that you can get the patient admitted to the floor. It does take place in a context, so it depends on where you're working. Uh, they still may be down there, even though you've saved a whole bunch of time by uh, doing a POCUS first approach and doing the admission orders, they still might be in the department, unfortunately. Fortunately, that is the ED system we are in. All right, well, it's time to comment on the author's conclusions and compare them to the SGEM's conclusions. We generally agree with the author's conclusions for the US, but we don't consider that they can be extrapolated to Canada or the UK or Australia or elsewhere without further study. All right, Kirsty, can you give us an SGM bottom line? Point of care ultrasound as first line imaging in suspected small bowel obstruction could avoid significant numbers of CT scans in the US. And can you resolve that case that you presented about the person asking, is there something else we could do besides getting another scan? So you meet your surgical colleague at the bedside and perform a POCUS, which shows small bowel obstruction. After discussion with the patient, she's admitted for conservative management and a CT is avoided. And so how are you going to take this study and apply it clinically, Kirsty? We may be able to avoid significant numbers of CTs for suspected small bowel obstruction by using POCUS as first-line imaging. In my shop, I'm going to need to go back and discuss that with my radiology and surgical colleagues and work out how it applies in my environment. And so you said you were going to bring the surgeon to the patient's bedside to do the POCUS. I thought that was, I thought, yeah, that was good. Um, so when you're at the patient's bedside, what are you going to tell them while you're doing the POCUS exam and then, and then giving them the results? 
I'm going to say that we can perform a bedside ultrasound, which can demonstrate the small bowel obstruction, but warn them that it is likely that if operative interventions needed, the surgeon will probably still want you to have a CT scan. All right, it's time for the Keener contest. Last week's winner was Mario Pinoli. He knew a torus is a geometric shape made by rotating a circle around an axis, making a donut shape or a torus. What is the Keener question this week? It is a trip back in time. The use of imaging to support the diagnosis of post-operative ileus was first reported in 1920 in which journal? Oh, and I read that article. I went down and hunted down that article. I'm not going to tell you which journal it was in, but it was from 1920. And it's amazing what you can find on the internet. And I found it and read it. It was fascinating. Um, so, you know, if you know which journal published an imaging study to support the diagnosis of a post-operative ileus in 1920, then send an email to the sgem at gmail.com with Keener in the subject line. The first correct answer will receive a cool skeptical prize. Now it's your turn, S. Gemmers. What do you think of this episode on POCUS for small bowel obstruction? Tweet your comments using hashtag SGEMHOP. What questions do you have for Charlie and Andrew? Ask them on the SGEM blog and the best social media feedback will be published in Academic Emergency Medicine. Well, thank you, Charlie, for coming on the SGEM and telling us about Monte Carlo simulations and really getting us uh, our head around that modeling. It's great to have a new quality checklist and a new methodology to expose the SGEM listeners to. So thank you very much. Thank you so much for having us. This has been a blast. And thank you, Andrew, for coming and giving us a masterclass in sensitivity analysis. Thank you so much for having us. Well, it's great working with you again, uh, Kirsty. I really do appreciate you taking some time off from your holidays camping up in Wales and coming down to the local pub to record this pubcast. Now, this is not the first pubcast I've done, actually. I've done, in, in season number one, when I was training, doing that mini fellowship in Oxford at the Center for Evidence-Based Medicine, I took my group out, I think it was the King Arms uh, pub, and we recorded a pubcast. It was on orthopedic surgeons and their dominant grip strength and intelligence comparing that to the anesthetist and that was published in the bmj in one of their holiday issues i'll put a link in the show notes <laughs> was that the one about um as strong as an ox and also as intelligent yes I, I we're paraphrasing the title and the results were yes their dominant grip strength was greater than the anesthetists that were you know hurling these jokes across the curtain but when they did standardized uh, intelligent testing I think the orthopedic surgeons were not just as smart as the anesthetists. I think they were a little smarter. And so the take-home message was they needed to come, the anesthetist needed to come up with new barbs or quips when they're in the operating theater with the orthopedic surgeons. Anyways, let's finish this episode with uh, having our guest skeptics read the SGEM tagline. Remember to be skeptical of anything you learn. Even if you heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Talk to everyone next week.